0: Hey everybody, welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we have a great guest recommended to us by my good friend, Bern Galvin. Catherine Stewart, author and reporter. She appears regularly in the New York Times, The New Republic, and NBC News. And she's written multiple books on the Christian right in America. Her newest book, The Power Worshippers, came out last year, highly recommended. We're here to talk about one of the key factors in just about every election, but especially as we look to 2022, Christian nationalism. Catherine, thanks for being with us.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, uh, you're yeah, actually, uh, we've had two or three guests recently, Stuart Stevens and then um, James Fletcher, who uh, is director of a, a film, The Accidental President. Um, and both of them sort of explained Um, how we all lack the imagination to see Trump happening in 2016 and and then still kind of lack the imagination about how far he would go and how far this is still likely to go. Um, And Nick O'Malley came on uh, a few episodes ago and talked about how journalism and just sort of the fragmentation of, of coverage out there is just sort of further making things... Tough uh, to understand and seeing people go into their own niches. Uh, and then uh, I read, uh, and Alex read it after Vern uh, clued us in, uh, some of your pieces uh, about how, you know, obviously Christian nationalism, the movement, uh, had a lot to do with what a lot of us didn't see uh, coming. And and how it's 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 still here. The, the scarier part was how it's still here and and how did Trump appeal to them? How did what's the connection between him? This guy doesn't seem you know I, I think he seems to be not out of that value structure out of their their value structure, but somehow was able to energize them in the way in the way he was able to do.
1: Yeah, I think your guests are absolutely right. That sort of failure to imagine uh, is correct. It's it's not that we failed to imagine that Trump could win. It's that we really failed to understand how Christian nationalists could like Trump and how he could appeal to their authoritarian tendencies. Um, I think we failed to understand what Christian nationalism really is. Um, there's a tendency to view it as a culture war or as a social movement. I think a lot of Uh, took for granted that the movement is motivated by some moral or religious concerns. So a lot of observers tended to see their support for Trump as a kind of compromise or something purely transactional, uh, like he promised to uh, appoint pro-life judges and the like. But observers really failed to grasp that this is a nationalist movement, uh, meaning that it's driven fundamentally by a desire to consolidate a national identity uh, tied to explicit religious and cultural um, and implicitly racial identities and to defend it against and sometimes explicit racial identities and to defend it against some perceived extreme threat which in their cases, pluralism, secularism, uh, the idea of equality. So, you know, Trump uh, far from representing a, a compromise candidate actually embodied many of this movements aspirations
0: so, I mean, in your Times piece right after the election, you, you you pointed this out that you know we have racial, uh, urban-rural divides um, that, that that often get the most spotlight, but that the religious the, the religion divide is is really important, and and I didn't I'd like you to get into a little bit more about sort of the the you know what's the definition of of this nationalism you're talking about? I mean, is it the, 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 a Christian nation? I mean, what is it that, 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 that drives it?
1: Well, Christian nationalism is the idea um, that America uh, is tied to uh, religious and uh, cultural identities. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a political movement. Uh, it consists of a variety of both you know, for-profit, non-profit uh, groups, legal advocacy groups. Um, There's like a kind of machinery of the movement, uh, legislative initiatives, right-wing policy groups, um, uh, data organizations, uh, kind of a a messaging sphere, all acting sort of in concert, uh, certainly in election cycles. You know, um, it makes use of religion, but it's not just trying to achieve religious, social or cultural aims. It's really trying to achieve political power. And I think that there's a kind of many aspects of the movement that are uh, unappreciated. It's sort of often framed as a religious movement or a cultural movement, but really it's, you know acting in concert uh, in election cycles to achieve political power. You know, it says that the United States is founded on the Bible and our country can only succeed if it stays true to this foundation. Um, and as such, it's really a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population and for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite.
0: Yeah, Catherine, one of the things I think you just mentioned is kind of the exercise of power. The view from the cheap seats is often that it's kind of this kind of uncoordinated group of people who kind of have these motivations, but From reading a lot of what you said, it it is actually very coordinated. Can you talk a little bit more tactically about that?
1: Sure. I mean, the strength of the movement is really in its dense organizational infrastructure. I really describe that at length in my book. I spent over a decade going to right-wing policy meetings and gatherings and strategy meetings and kind of um, speaking to the movement leadership and uh, understanding sort of how those different components work together. So it consists of a a very closely interconnected network of, you know, as I mentioned, right-wing policy groups such as uh, the um, Family Research Council, the American Family Association, groups like that, Um, leadership networking groups like the Council for National Policy, um, uh, training organizations like the Leadership Institute, legal advocacy organizations. There's a whole kind of Right-wing legal um, ego sphere uh, like the Federal Society, groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom or Liberty Council, very sophisticated data organizations, uh, media and messaging platforms, a kind of I say far-right <laughs> propaganda sphere, and a lot of pastors networks, uh, pastors networking organizations that basically mobilize conservative leaning and conservative congregations in election seasons that sort of, you know, get all of the congregants on the same page to turn them out to vote for the so-called correct, biblically correct candidates. So these groups are all working together for common political aims. And so the strength of the movement is really in this organizational infrastructure and coordination and And it sorry, go on. (laughs) No, no,
0: do you see this uh, like particularly now with uh, with, with, uh, Trump, you know, not directly in the picture the way he was and with Biden's election. Is the temperature on all this going down or is it or, or are you? is it being is it amplifying? Are they even more worried now that, that Joe Biden's president? Or I mean, how do you how do you see the current situation in terms of going into 2022 from us political animals out here who, who try to figure out uh, what's likely to happen, and what we have to guard against?
1: Well, this movement is not going away. I mean, it uh, has the strength that it does because it invested in the, there was you know, substantial investment in the machinery of the movement over decades. The movement long preceded Donald Trump and will long outlast him. And they always act to rally their uh, voters in election cycles. Um, here's another key point. It's a movement that's really driven by fear and negative emotion. So uh, a big question is if they can motivate their base to fear Biden and the Democrats to the degree that they need to win elections, um, they will really be able to succeed. That is, you know, if they can uh, get this message out that Biden is some kind of crazy maniac and the Democrats were all out to rip up the foundations of the real America. If that message succeeds, then the rank and file will come out in support of whoever the Republicans put up. So, how, how, um,
0: how much of this, though, is um, are a lot of us responsible for in, in the following way? I mean, if if left in their own silo to keep um, engaging in these, you know, in, in, in this fear and we've stopped talking to them because they're crazy or whatever, you know, you, you know, or, or, or in our, you know, in the way we, you know, I'm talking about Joe Trippy here, you know, the way we think <laughs> about it. Um, I mean, is part of this the the polarization where we've pulled away and not engaged them? Or is it just not there's just no as some people say, like, forget it. It's not worth talking to them. There's no there's there's no way to get uh, there is no common ground with with, with this group of people. Is that I, I don't know what's your thought on that?
1: You know, I think that it's really helpful when we're, it's always worth talking to people, of course. And, you know, we have to remember that this is a leadership driven movement. It's really not driven by the rank and file. Um, regarding the rank and file, we're talking about a wide range of people with different interests and backgrounds and ideas. And I think the first thing to remember about the rank and file is that a substantial number of them do not support anything like a theocracy. And many of them would be very unhappy to learn Um, all of the details of what their leaders are proposing. And I think a lot of this group votes identity and not just policy. So when they're voting for the candidate who promises to end abortion, reunite church and state, they're not really aiming for major fundamental changes in the way American government is organized. They're kind of making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. Their identity might be Christian nationalist only in a loose way. Uh, and they, of course, um, care about all the things that the rest of us care about, and healthcare and education, infrastructure. I think it's, you know, if if Biden and the Democrats can, you know, act on infrastructure and healthcare uh, and education, these other things that um, matter to all of us, it really takes away some of that fear narrative that, um, you know, takes some of the wind out of the sails of the fear narrative, but, um, You know, it's also important to remember that this movement is really a minority of the population. They only um, punch above their political weight because of the strength of that movement infrastructure. I always pay attention to what George Barna is saying, Ralph Reed, you know, I go to their events and things and, you know, in advance of 2016. Um, George Barna said, you know, he wrote a book called The Day Christians Changed America. Of course, his definition of what Christians is is very narrow, Um, but he said, you know, the most devoted religious rights supporters are only 10% of the population, but um, I think it was like 91% turned out to vote in 2016 and 93% turned out to vote for Trump. Um, Most recently, I heard um, Johnny Moore, who's one of the major evangelicals for Trump guys say, we're just 10% of the population, but we're 30% of the electorate. So if you look at, you know, they punch above their political weight because they're so disproportionately organized and networked and because of the machinery of that movement. So turning out the vote is really important. And of course, it's always worth having conversations and, um, you know, trying to bring people at the margins who who do care about things like infrastructure and education. Well,
0: uh, the other thing it seems to me is uh, they have, because of their organization uh, and structure uh, an ability to and I use the word infect not in a, a pejorative but they 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 can reach out to others with that fear inject that fear into other people and, and sort of grow that 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 fear out there uh well beyond the 10, 20 30 percent that they may may actually uh uh be themselves and, and so in a lot of ways, some of the conversation—if if we're having the conversation with those people, I mean, the 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 ones that are sort of outside, just outside their circle, but they're able to pull in, maybe we can can, can pull them. But that's one of the things I think Biden was able to do at some level in the in the election um, that the party writ large couldn't do. That. It was easy to demonize the whole party. It's like just a lot of ways where it's easier to demonize Hillary than it was to to demonize. Uh, Uh, Biden, um, uh, in in a way that got people to fear Hillary or or fear the party or fear fear Pelosi or any of the other uh, people they hold up uh, to uh, worry that Black Lives Matter, whatever I mean, whatever it takes uh, to create that fear and grow it beyond their own their own universe. I mean their own. uh, voter support.
1: You're absolutely right about that. And I think a really important component is moderate um, and liberal voices of faith, You know, moderate and progressive voices of faith. Uh, one thing that uh, the uh, movement has tried to do is say, you know, it's us versus the apocalypse. Uh, you're either, I think, uh, John Trump Jr. put it at the RNC, he said, it's a choice between church work at, or, and school or, you know marauding Deviling. and chaos, yeah. you know, it's like this incredibly binary choice. But it's really important to um, you know, I think most American Christians reject the politics of division and conquest that this movement represents.
0: Well, and also don't I mean, I'm just sort of curious about this, because, you know, Trump, uh, I, I can't remember uh, attending church during his presidency. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't. But the only recollection I have is when he walked across, after tear gassing, he walked across the square and held the Bible upside down um, in front of the church outside the White House. Um, and here you've got, I mean, Biden, who who genuinely, um, uh, you know, it, it, a devout Christian, um, goes to, to church, uh, I mean, religiously, uh, and... And who ends every speech, uh, I think, in a way that that Trump never really I mean, I mean, an earnest appeal to God bless the country and God bless our keep our 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 troops safe. I mean, there's a it just seems to me like is he will they hear any of that or is the fear out there of whatever wherever Democrats are or we're going to try to, you know, that that apocalypse that he represents or that they try to get us get their Followers to to fear, is that a constant struggle right now? Is there a chance that he can disarm people enough, or that they'll they'll see his genuineness and and give him a chance?
1: It's always about the margins, isn't it? So yeah, of course, it's going to work with, um, you know, many. I think you know, again, most American Christians, most American Catholics um, uh, reject the politics of division and conquest. Um, you know, I think a a a lot of uh, you know. Interestingly, there's a kind of um, sort of political divide within American Catholicism as well. Uh, Ralph Reed has called Catholics to jump all of American politics, is sort of you know as diverse as the whole nation is politically. But um, obviously, his uh, you know he's a cradle Catholic. He's uh, devout; has been his whole life, and um, and that message you know of anchoring uh, his. Um, concern for uh, humanity, for, for, for other human beings in his Catholic faith resonates with many American Christians. And uh, it's really important to remind people <clears throat> that that's, that, is, that is religion as well. You know, the religious right likes to uh, claim that they alone have a, a lock on, what, on what, what faith is. And yet, uh, probably most Americans of faith Uh, would not go along
0: with with that uh, particular agenda. The quote-unquote autopsy that's going on. The one thing I I really want to touch on uh, before we lose you is is, uh, the impact that the religious right has had on our court system. And uh, your recent uh, New Republic piece uh, really explored where we stand there. Uh, And one of the things that I can't remember... Uh, maybe Alex, you can about what guess but said that it sort of matches up here. So I'll get to it. it. Is that the autopsy on 2020 was that they had to go beyond where they had the will to to push the envelope and take over the authoritarianism uh, view of the world, and the other part of the the, the autopsy was to purge anybody. Who in 2020 exhibited a reluctance to exceed and, and go over that line? Then, so then when I I, I read the piece, it, it, there it's totally different because you're talking about the court. But it seems to me that there's that the Supreme Court you, you're looking at in a lot of ways is crossing over to that nationalism as well. Uh, can you you talk about that for a bit?
1: Sure. I, I think the big battleground is really the reframing of religious freedom as a, a right for people with sort of correct beliefs to discriminate against others of whom they disapprove and be a sort of bid for public money. But I think the main point of the religious freedom argument that as the, as the religious right defines it is really to reinforce this Christian nationalist narrative, the narrative that we, you know, so-called we, the true Christians, supposedly true Christians are a persecuted group and the salvation of the nation really depends on on them, right? It's a grievance narrative, and I think it would be, uh, frankly, foolish to believe it could be placated by granting them the privileges that they want. They will never be satisfied because they will continue to see themselves as aggrieved, and will support, frankly, any authoritarian candidate who addresses those grievances.
0: Well, that's that's the part that I, I I'm trying to get at here because your 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 book really. Uh, and the piece I think really tackled the idea of exercising raw power at this at the expense of the rule of, of law. And, and, and what I'm trying to understand is how did the religious right get here? I mean, the 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 exercise of raw power is more important, and, and sort of a, a guy like Trump you, you know, really pounding the table on the exercise of raw power over everything else. Mm-hmm how does that, and I, I kind of, I get what you're you're saying. I mean, this fear that, well, that's the way we keep to keep the privilege that we, we deserve, but, so, I, I, but where does that go? I mean, in other words, over time, uh, it's clear demographics and other things are, you know, we're starting to see, uh, changes in so many states and, and mm-hmm. what, what, as, as they don't, grow in size and I'm not saying they can't but I'm just saying as they, as their percentage in the electorate shrinks and they and they lose that sense of fear that the apocalypse is coming and we're losing power does that just make it even more I mean the just the the grab for raw power becomes then the, the most important thing to them I'm just trying to get into your your thinking on on no. something I don't yeah. think I'm articulating very well <laughs> But listeners know that (laughs) know that about me already.
1: That's a joke. There's, I mean, you've said so much uh, uh, that I could riff on, and I'll start with this. I mean, yes, of course. As they, they, I think they've figured out that they can't win in a fair fight, and that's why they're all in on voter suppression. I mean, how many hundreds of bills and how many states? Because you know, I think uh, Trump himself was caught in a hot mic saying, you know, if every American could vote, we'd never win, uh, Republicans would never win another election. And it echoes what Paul Weyrich said, you know, way back when, when he was, uh, he and a group of others were starting the sort of new right, which is the beginning of the modern, uh, you know, contemporary Christian nationalist movement, when he said, I don't want everybody to vote, our our influence elections goes up when the number of voters goes down or something like that. So you can even see him on video saying that. Um, so yeah, they're all in on voter suppression, but they're also all in. The one thing that this is really doing is producing a tremendous amount of irrationality in the movement. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, um, it used to be plausible that this was a cultural movement, you know, preoccupied with things like abortion, same-sex marriage and the like. It no longer is. I mean, the movement has sort of, uh, embraced wholeheartedly uh, these incredible conspiracies that, um, you know, that um, have really uh, served to destroy in, in a way, uh, just show how they want to destroy our democracy. I mean, if you look at January 6th, and if you look at um, the um, Trump's, at this point, indisputable dissent into outright fraud and conspiracy, that has really done remarkably little to shake um, uh, large segments of the base. I mean, let's put it this way. There's some evidence that the numbers of people who are devoted to Christian nationalist supporters are on the decline, as you mentioned, and as people like um, George Barna have noted. Uh, and Ralph Reed, but there is no evidence that people who have all the characteristics of Christian nationalism, or the leadership, I should say, are breaking from a kind of Trumpism. So even if Trump himself isn't the candidate in 2024 whoever is going to throw their, they're gonna throw their support to um, whatever candidate most closely embodies the kinds of politics that he represents,
0: you know. So, so we, let me take that uh, to the logical couple of places here. Uh, you know, looking at 2022, for instance, Trump will not be on the ballot. And I've, you know, in both a t- 2018, well, at least let's go back to 2018, I mean, he him when he has been on the ballot 2016 2020 we have seen a surge in in trumpism voters right uh rural areas you know etc uh and that's what what helped him defeat hillary and and came t- much closer than a lot of people would have would have hoped uh to to chase biden but in 2018 those people didn't come out when he was not on the ballot and in uh 2017 and the Doug Jones race that Alex and I worked on in in Alabama, they did not come out uh, in 2000. The Trump the, that Trump surge didn't happen, and so the the question is within 2022, he won't be on the ballot. How do you see these voters react? I mean, do we see that same thing where he's not there? There's no nationalist. Candidate, you know, national figure, you know, leading the charge. I mean, he was there in 2018 doing rallies and things, but it didn't work. They didn't come out. They, they came out for his rallies, but they didn't come out for the rest of the Republicans that way. So um, do you think now, I mean, with, that's what I'm saying. With, with, Democrats came out like crazy in 2018 because Trump was there. Do they come out now like crazy in 2022 because of Biden, that fear, or... Or is it sort of tied to Trump right now in terms of his personality? I, what do you do? You have any opinion about that?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's tied to Trump. Look, I don't like making predictions, right? But um, the one key fact is that Christian nationalism, that machinery, is not going away. And I think anyone who hopes to win in these elections, whether it's uh, 2022 or 2024, will have to drink that batch of Kool-Aid. And I think every Republican candidate knows that very well. And that's why they're chugging that Kool-Aid as fast as they can. I mean, I think a big problem has to do with the fact that we have all this sort of gerrymandering, a lot of it, race-based gerrymandering, um, which means that in a lot of um, uh, elections on the Republican side, they're not running against Democrats, they're running against fellow Republicans. And the way they get, uh, the way they win and get them, and they win by giving machinery of the movement behind them is to run to the right of their, you know of of their uh challengers to not let anyone get to the right of them, so you know this one is and, and and so you end up with these kind of extreme right candidates and it's it's really unfortunate i mean i I happen to think our country functions best when we have two rational functioning political parties that understand the virtues of you know of of give and take of power and compromise and the like. But we have a really, you know, our, our, unfortunately, one of our political parties, the Republican Party, has, um, has gone off on the deep end. And I think part of it has to do with gerrymandering and the, the fact that the way they, you know, the, the way they, they run to the right of their challengers.
0: Right. And that sounds to me like, or at least I, because when I'm somebody who uh, also believes that, um, you know, two functioning uh, common sense, you know, parties trying to reach some kind mm-hmm. of commonality, uh, mm-hmm. is the best uh, way for the country. But even when you start talking about that, um, in democratic circles, now that's the, 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 so appalled at where the Republican party is that you just get a whole lot of, no, you can't talk to that. act. How can you even say that? Uh, which I think again, just drives everybody further apart. And, um, uh, you, you know, and so it, it, when you look at 2024, you know the logical thing to understand is there whoever runs in 2024 if trump isn't in it is going to run hard to this group because as you say the the, the candidate who can harness the endorsements and support of this group is probably uh, you know a lock for the nomination um you're going to have a bunch of ambitious republicans who want to be president who who understand that they need to get the nomination before they have any chance uh and so that doesn't bode well. I mean, in terms of they will be clearly energized uh, through 2022 and and into 2024, uh, if you think about it that way.
1: Yeah, you're right, Joe. they will only win if they have the blessings of this movement, their movement leaders, and they know it. And that's why they continue to turn sort of piety into spectacle and also continue to stoke the kind of grievance, uh grievances that is the sort of um flaming core of Republican politics today.
0: Well one of the things that uh we have been uh since January talking about you know and saying hey after January sixth don't actually back then it was after the twenty first, don't let up. Don't like just breathe a big sigh of relief and think, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden's president. We're over and we've got a majority in the in the Senate after uh, Georgia. Don't just uh uh you, you know give him a sigh of relief and think we're out of this um and so we've been you know by bringing on uh different guests trying to trying to g- sort of get reasons for people to I- to educate people about why 2022 and 2024 uh, are you know kind of in a lot of ways critical and and more important maybe than the 2020 election in terms of you know uh uh, uh, keeping our guard up and not and in in working hard today. Not wait. Hey, let's wait till twenty twenty. You know, January twenty twenty two, and then we'll start a campaign. We've got to start. Uh, whether uh, talking to some of these folks, um, uh, I think Biden's doing a great job. On uh, one thing, I think we have is the advantage with a Democratic president, House and Senate. Um, something you spoke to, if, if we're actually able to be effective and touch them on the kitchen table issues of, of, of health care um, uh, and getting them economic health in the middle of this crisis and, to, and effectively um, show that government isn't, you know, that, that, that we're not, that it's not Armageddon, <laughs> that, that, that uh, uh, Democrats actually can get something done for you. Um, and I think Biden's doing a great job of that. We'll see if the Democratic Party can keep the discipline of not wanting more and pushing harder um, uh, than then, you know, he's willing to go and trying to pull this all together. But so far, I think, you know, it's now up to a lot of people out there, hopefully our listeners to to realize uh, there are a lot of reasons to think this ain't over and we need to keep up the fight. Um, Catherine, I really appreciate Uh, You being on and helping us uh, uh, get a a better understanding of Christian nationalism and and how it's impacting, not just the past elections, but how it could impact 2022 and 2024.
1: Thank you so much. It a pleasure to speak with you today.
0: Thanks for listening to that, trippy Show. I really do urge you to get yourself a copy of uh, Catherine's book, The Power Worshippers, on Amazon or in bookstores now. And make sure you check her uh, workout, uh, her latest piece in the New Republic, or follow her at at Kath, at K-A-T-H-S Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, uh, on Twitter. So Joe, you mentioned Twitter. I I think you went viral this week. You had a, a pretty touching story about uh, Fritz Mondale. Would, would love to hear that yeah I I I, uh, I was hit pretty hard. Uh, I mean look he was 93 years old. He had an incredible life. He's a wonderful man uh, but he touched me in so many um, on a personal level in so many ways when I worked for him. Um, and I just felt I had to to try to tell the story of who that who Walter Mondale was. And so um, look uh, I was uh, in my 20s, I was running the state of Iowa. Um, you know, the Iowa caucuses. I mean, he was the vice president of the United States. He could have anybody. His, his choice of organizers in the party uh to choose to run Iowa. Um, I was really fortunate uh for him to uh to put me uh in in what was then his, the most important state he had to win it. Um and on top of that, a Kennedy guy, because there were only uh two or three Kennedy guys who or were even hired in the Mondale campaign because of the bad blood between the Carter Mondale campaign and the Kennedy campaign in 1980. Um, and so, you know, he had always did the same thing when he flew into Iowa and flew out. As the trip ended, he'd load the, we'd load the plane up with the traveling staff and the and the huge press corps that he was carrying on a big seven twenty seven. And Fritz would come down the stairs of that plane, grab me, and we'd walk around the tarmac, around the plane, two or three times. Uh, and he'd always, you know, we'd talk about just about anything. But at the end of it, uh, he would always look me in the eye, tell me his future was in my hands. Um, and it was kind of like that no pressure kid, but don't blow it thing. Um, in Iowa, uh, and then he'd go bounding up the stairs and on, you know, the next flight on to New Hampshire for where he was going. And, you know, it, it, it it was, uh, but we talk about all kinds of other things walking around that plane. I mean, he loved pinball. The guy played a mean pinball, which people had probably no clue when you think of vice president, mind you. Uh, but anyway, we talked about all kinds of things. And one day we were talking about my family and he, he finally got around to ask me about, you know, my dad did and Etc. And, you know, look, I, I, I told him that my dad hadn't spoken to me in five years, that my dad wanted me to run his flower shop, uh, thought that, you know, going to college was like being irresponsible. Uh, and definitely then when I quit college to go work for Kennedy, you know, that was like that was it. Bam. Uh, 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 I was going off to be a political hack uh, uh, in a, you know, miserably. Uh, corrupt profession or whatever he, he, you know, he was old school Italian. But, uh, uh, you know, and then, of course, in that conversation, I'm reminding Fritz that I, he he dumped me. I mean, he stopped talking to me because I went to work for Kennedy, quit college. But Mondale thought that was pretty funny and thought that maybe I should have listened to my dad at least about that part. Uh, but anyway, um, long story short, we end up uh, winning Iowa by 49 points. Uh, Gary Hart gets 19, uh, percent I think, distant, you know, 30 points behind us. But it, man, he he coming in second got him the media spotlight and he and, and enough coverage uh, and momentum to beat us in New Hampshire. And you know, as I said in the tweet um, uh, scroll, uh, you know, the Hart rocket was was launched. Launched. We started losing state after state. And they gave, the national campaign gave Fritz these boxing gloves, um, uh, and dubbed him Fighting Fritz. And every rally from that point on, he would walk onto stage with these Boston, these gloves and thrust them in the air, uh, and you know to to you know to the theme of fighting Fritz. Um, and the press, the, the the campaign put out the to the press that he was going to carry those damn gloves until. Uh, he 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 sort of stopped the the string of defeats that Gary Hart was handing him till he till he till he beat Gary, um, which got me to be the Pennsylvania state director in April. <laughs> so because we're fourteen points behind in Pennsylvania, and if we don't win Pennsylvania, there aren't going to be enough delegates left for Fritz to have a shot at the nomination. So. In March, they send me up to Pennsylvania, uh, 14 points down. I said it in the, in the tweet scroll, people think I had nightmares uh, uh, of, about losing Iowa, and I did. Man, they nothing compared to the nightmares I had thinking about the, what would happen if we lost Pennsylvania. We win Pennsylvania. The networks call it. Uh, it's the biggest victory probably in my life. The only thing that came comes close to it was Doug Jones and the victory in 2017, uh, which was amazing, but this was even that more amazing. Um, and I get a call and it's David Littlehog, the, the at the time, the, the guy who traveled with with Fritz and say, calls me and says, Fritz wants you to come up to the suite before he goes downstairs to declare victory. So I get in the elevator, I go upstairs to the suite, I walk through the door and there's Fritz Mondale uh, sitting on the couch on the sofa talking to this old Italian dude and telling him that his son uh, worked in an honorable profession uh, and that he, the vice president, depended on me. And you need to know that because uh, he's trying to make a difference. And and that's real important. And it's my dad. Fritz Mondale had remembered that conversation from months earlier. I mean, m- eons ago in a presidential campaign, um somehow located my dad without asking me where he was uh, and and got him to Philadelphia to be there on election night um and when David lllehogg uh handed uh you know my dad was hugging me, we were reconciling and and David Lilhog handed fritz those gloves those boxing gloves that he'd been carrying for months to carry him on stage downstairs and fritz turned. Um, and said, I don't need these anymore. Took out a felt tip pen and wrote to Rocky trippy, uh, thanks, Fritz Mondale on one of them. Gave them to me, grabbed my father, dragged him down to the ballroom, made him go up on stage with him and stand right with him while he was giving that victory speech in Philadelphia and uh, uh, winning the Pennsylvania primary. And then, you know, my dad passed away some years later and I I said, I tucked the, uh, one of those gloves to rest with him, uh, gently uh, to be in there with him. And the other one um, remains with me is a, is a homage to Fritz. And I, I didn't want to do this because I can barely ever get through this story without breaking up. So thanks for that, Alex, to update you on where we are in Texas. Uh, a new poll... Now has Democrat Jana Lynn Sanchez leading by four points in the Texas 6th special election. That's a one, that's an election that Operation 147 um, has been focused on because we want to turn uh, over as many of these people who are districts that where they supported not certifying the election and, and overthrowing the results. This is the first one to come up. Uh, And right now, a Democrat, uh, it's a jungle primary, but we're ahead. Uh, And uh, we're on the air, Uh, uh, 147. Operation 147 is on the air in this district. And we really feel strongly that we can pull it off. So check out our ad uh, and help us keep it on the air at uh, operation147.com. We'll be back next Friday at our usual time. As usual, if you have a race, you want us to spotlight or questions, please submit it on iTunes in the reviews or email us at thattrippyshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. Uh, it really helps us grow. And one thing I, I really do think this series of conversations that we had with, with uh, Stuart Stevens, uh, Nick O'Malley, James Fletcher, uh, and today's uh, show with Catherine, are worth if you missed any of them go back um and look for them uh because i really think they start to starkly show how important um putting all our oars in the water and paddling to some to 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 victory in 2022 is going to be thanks a lot and we'll be back next friday